Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the evening service. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. So I'm going to be reading Acts. Um, it's on page 1134 if you have a Bible. Um, <clears throat> but it's Acts 27 going through to 28. So stopping at verse 44. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramtium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristius, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the sea, off the coast of Cilicia and Paraphilia, we landed in Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sindus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fairhavens near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, The majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought that they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of the lee of a small island called Calder, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that they would run around on the sandbars by Sarectis. They lowered the ship anchor and set the ship be driven along. We we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. 
On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spread yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, who's, who's, who, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. When Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, "'Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved,' So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, You have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of all of them. Then he broke it and gave it to get, began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with sandy beach there where they decided to run the ship aground if they could cutting loose the anchors they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders then they hoisted the force out of the wind and made for the beach but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground the the bow struck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks and on pieces of ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. Great job. Isn't it easy being a Christian? Uh, (laughs) 
Good, thank you so much, Mary, for reading that for us. Question for you. Who is in charge around here? Who is in charge around here? When I ask that question, I wonder what those words evoke. I'll tell you what they evoke for me. I've got a bit of a picture. I think we've got a picture. No picture. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Because uh, at least 90% of you will have seen this picture. So just when Kabul was about to, uh, the the airport was about to fall, do you remember the picture came out of this aeroplane, Cam Air aeroplane, Nice, white, beautiful, if you're into this kind of thing, uh, you know, A360, Airbus. And on top of it, a man standing in his Afghan robes, right on the top of the aeroplane. It was a powerful representation of human fragility and the terror of disorder. Here you had this multi-million dollar piece of technology. It was ready hours before it could have whisked 400 people off thousands of miles to safety. And now, in the human chaos of Kabul airport, it was just a helpless aluminium tube, unable to move an inch, probably never will again. A powerful representation of how we depend on these precarious balances of power. And we're hardly aware of it most of the time. Who actually is in charge around here? There we go. There it is. Fantastic. Good job. Good job. But I wonder what happens if we ask the question a bit bigger. Who's in charge around here as in in the whole world? Who controls it? Who, if anyone, commands our days? Is there any being, any force or object capable or willing to influence and, and draw together all the infinitely complex strands of our existence into some kind of meaningful, coherent pattern. This question, this question basically of control, is the theme for today. And it's the fourth of our series entitled Magnetic Points. It's another one of those aspects of human experience that I think connects everyone. Everyone at some stage asks that question. And I'm going to spend the first part of our time just exploring some of the ways how in our culture people are thinking about this question of who's in control. And then I want to look to the Christian faith to see what what that has to say. And I'm hoping and praying that as we look to that, as we look to Jesus, we're going to find in him both the hope of a secure destiny that we, we also long for, but also a sense of how our actions and our decisions right now still have meaning and purpose. And that, I hope, will be useful not just for us right now, but also for us as we go out into the world and We see our friends and our colleagues and our family asking those same questions and wondering whether the Christian faith has anything to say to them. So back to our question. Is anyone, is anything in control? Throughout most of history, most human beings have said yes. Now they've had significantly differing notions of exactly who, what kind of being, force or object is in control. But in general they believe there is some kind of a framework of destiny that's kind of supervising and influencing us from the outside. Now, it hasn't always been easy um, to make sense of that from that perspective. Um, Often, over the course of history, people have been confronted by suffering and injustice, and and our faith in some kind of sovereign power has been really challenged by that. 
uh, and that's been true for thousands of years. But people have kind of continued to believe. Now, today it looks a bit different. Although, I'm, we're going to come down to it, it's not, it's not quite what we say on the outside, what we actually believe. But if you read our newspapers or you listen to our politicians, we might say we live in a secular age. We, we sort of dispense with the ideas of God and therefore with that, we got rid of any kind of overarching framework of control and order. So when, when you ask our, our culture at large, where is the power? Who's in control? The stories that people tell are usually about championing the power of the individual instead. I don't know whether anyone's watched the Neverland musical here. Okay, you don't, it's fine. You don't have to admit publicly on this particular occasion. Here's, this, here's a song which captures it for, uh, beautifully. We're all made of stars. We're all made of dreams. No matter who you are, you can do what you want, go where you like, and be who you want to be. Now, it's not just the Neverland musical that plays that kind of tune and those words. And there's a really positive side, of course, to that idea. It underlines this real dignity and potential of each person's choices. Of course, anyone who's given it more than about 10 seconds thought recognizes it's just a whole load of well, it's problematic, isn't it? Let's put it that way. It just isn't true that in general, in wherever you are, you can just go where you want, to, where you want to and be who you want to be. So let me give you one example, a personal one. I have never profoundly desired to play professional football. But if you had said to me when I was little, John, if you just want to be a professional footballer, you can definitely be in the Premier League, just as long as you want it bad enough. That would not only have been untrue, it would have been cruel, right? Because the world is rammed full of young boys with that very same ambition. Way more boys than you can fit into the Premier League in any generation, right? And a good number of those kids actually really want it as well. They want it really, really badly. And of those kids that really, really want it, some of them are also properly athletic and they can kick footballs and things. Now, when I was 13, I was playing a game. I was supposed to kick a ball. I missed the ball, and I broke my leg in the process of missing a ball. That's the kind of level of struggles that I have, right? Just to be clear, I'm not bitter. I'm, I'm very happy in my calling as a minister. I do not regret it for one second. But I am clear that our future is not determined simply by what we desire. We are not actually the captains of our souls in that sense. And it's interesting to note that Although there's a lot of people in our culture who kind of talk like that and try to convince teachers to say that kind of stuff to their kids, it's not really a very logical thing to say either. Because if you push the secular materialism, right, if, if you imagine that there's nothing other than matter, just stuff, what you actually end up concluding is not that God isn't control, we are. What you end up concluding, if you're going to strictly follow the logic, is that biology is in control, and we aren't. Right? So if you, if you ask the materialists of today, strictly speaking, is there any such thing as free will or, or self-determination, for example? They have to say, well, basically, no. Because we live in a world of causes and effects, and your brain is no different to anything else. And so although you feel free, every decision that, that, that we make is kind of already hardwired into the great big snooker game of existence where one event triggers the other right so if if matter is all there is we are just 
the only thing that's in control, basically, is this great big random machine of existence, and we're all just being carried along by it. Now, that would, that's the logical conclusion. It's also pretty disheartening, isn't it? It's not a particularly romantic idea, so most people just don't go down that, way, down that, down that route. And so what happens instead is they're like, okay, so this is, this is where I'd get to logically. I don't really like that. It's not a very nice thing to think about. So where else can I go? And here's where we come into what actually happens in our, our culture about thinking about destiny and who's in control. It's a bit muddy. Let's just think about one example here. Superstition. Now, theoretically, we're not really into superstition in our kind of modern Western culture. But if you've lived for more than a, a couple of minutes in our world, you recognize that's not how it works. Uh, uh, did you know, I discovered this this week, and by the way, they've done proper academic research on this. There are papers written about this. You never say the word quiet on a police patrol. Did you know that? Any police officer, you never say the word quiet, as in, how's it going tonight? Oh, it's quiet. You have to say Q, apparently, because there is a universal understanding that if you use the whole word quiet, it is more than likely to kick off straight away afterwards, right? That is an example of what we call your tempting fate. We're all familiar with that idea. Let's just think about that for a moment, how that works, okay? Your tempting fate. What does that mean? Well, basically what it means is what we imagine is that somewhere fate, whoever or whatever she is, is, is kind of she's sitting out there and she's waiting to do you over, right? But you have one great advantage on your side. Fate is not very imaginative. So you can't actually think about what she would actually do to you. The key thing you need to not do is give her any ideas. So keep her quiet. And then she won't do it. That's crazy, isn't it? But that is how a lot of people think about how, what is in control. So right. So much, so good. Hopefully we understand at least. We are confused. What help can the Lord Jesus give us? Well, I want to start with the Bible's both and. The Bible has a kind of both and, which I will explain in a moment, to help us think about who is in control. When it comes to the question of who controls the world, the Bible teaches two things. Namely, and they are kind of apparently contradictory, but apparently simultaneously true, without undermining one or the other. The first one is this. God is sovereign over all the events of all time. He's in control of everything. And the second thing is this. Human beings are responsible for everything that they do. God is completely sovereign over all the events of time. That's what we call divine sovereignty. And human beings are responsible. So, number one, God is sovereign. Jesus says, Matthew 10, 29, famous verses, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So nothing happens apart from the Father. Or take this verse from Isaiah 42. God says, I form the light and the darkness. I bring prosperity. I create disaster. I, Lord, I, the Lord, do all these things. God is in control. But secondly, alongside of that, Scripture seems to say that human beings are completely responsible for everything they do. And the easiest way of illustrating this is just to notice that Scripture is full of commands, right? Laws. So take the Ten Commandments. God chooses a people for himself. And then what happens? Does he just think, oh, great, I've chosen these people. They will now automatically, robotically do exactly what I want? No. 
he gives them a loads of, load of laws, and he says, you have to choose. Do you, want, do you want to follow these things or not? Because if you don't, it's going to go badly for you, but I'm telling you that right now because you are going to choose, and you're going to be responsible for that. So God is completely in control, and we are totally responsible. Now, at this stage, you might be thinking, okay, you started off explaining to me that we think in this culture in a very illogical way, and you've now come out with something way more com- confusing. How is that helpful? Which is it? Because if God is completely in control, how could I be personally responsible? And if I'm personally responsible, how could God be completely in control? And also, what difference does this make to my life? We're going to get onto that in just a moment. But just in answer to the first one, which is it? Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. We could spend a lot of time discussing this on a deeply philosophical level. We haven't even gone there yet. But the simple answer is, it's both of those things. It's both and. Logically, it should be either or. But... You're not God, neither am I, that he's above our pay grade, and it turns out it's both and. And I want to illustrate that. This is where the, the whole like being at sea business comes in, from that story that we just heard. So quick recap. Uh, Paul was on this terrible sea journey. He was on his way to Rome where he's, he'd appealed to Caesar, and they get caught in this massive storm, and they have to sort of rope up the ship like a piece of jointed pork so he doesn't fall apart. And they start throwing out the cargo in desperation. And then God amazingly intervenes suddenly. And an angel appears to Paul and says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. God has graciously given you these lives. So the angel is basically saying, look, the future is all in God's hands. Um, I mean, it always is. But on this occasion, I'm going to give you a bit of a preview of what's going to happen. And God is basically going to keep everyone alive, and we know that already, and because I tell you that, you're going to trust me, and so you know the outcome. So Paul has a great deal of confidence. And so he then goes to talk to the sailors. He says, keep up your courage, men. I have faith in God. It's going to happen just as he told me. Now, why does he say that? Because God knows, right? He's in control. He knows what's going to happen, so it's going to be fine. And here we see this, you know, how amazingly life-changing the sovereignty of God is. God had told Paul, look, you know, it's going to get really bad. Um, in fact, it's going to get a whole load worse. You're going to run aground. The, you know, the boat's going to get trashed. But don't be terrified. When it happens, even though you run aground, God is going to ensure that none of you get lost. Extraordinary. Can you imagine when Paul was there just in the water and all these guys are holding onto pieces of wood and floating towards this island. He thinks, wow, God, you're going to save all these guys. So far, so good. But if you were really, really sharp in your listening today, you would have noticed that there is something really weird that happens after that. Listen carefully. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, the sailors dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. And then, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. And then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Now, just think about that. That's an extraordinary thing to say. Shouldn't Paul have said to them, look guys, the thing is, I've had an angel come to speak to me. And basically, I know the way this is going to turn out. So you can, you can take the ship or you can not take the ship. It doesn't matter. 
I know how this is going to work out, and you're all going to get saved. He doesn't say that. He says, unless you do exactly what I say, you're all going to be lost. So he seems to believe simultaneously, God is completely in control of this situation, and yet everyone has absolute responsibility not to mess it up, otherwise it's going to go really wrong. Now, we read this account, and it, you know, sometimes you hear this patronizing stuff about, oh, they were a bit simple in those days, and they didn't really realize that they could write one sentence, and then the next sentence contradict themselves. I don't think that's what's going on. I think the guy who wrote the account... Luke, he knows exactly what's going on because both of these things are true. It's both and. Now, I promised I was going to say, come to this. What difference does any of this make? What difference does it make that God is sovereign and we are responsible? Number one, hope, not despair. I was at a um, dinner party the other day. I sat next to a girl. Um, She just had a baby and... She said, you know, I am terrified about the future. In fact, um, I I cannot get out of my head the ecological chaos that we are facing. And I'm I'm racked with guilt about whether I have been selfish to bring a child into this world. I have brought a daughter into a world that's on fire. Now... Environmental worries are very real, and, and they urgently need addressing. And, and we who believe that you know, God has made us stewards of this planet, we, we've got to take our part. But humanly speaking, our future is dependent on the actions of billions of people whom we cannot control or influence. So if you take God out of the picture, it is a terrifying picture. But here's the thing. We as Christians believe that Our future is also in the hands, the sovereign hands of God. He's good, he's powerful, and we can trust him with it. We don't abdicate our responsibility for looking after the planet, but we can rest on God's promises that no one can thwart them. And that's expressed, I guess, most beautifully on the cross. You remember that moment in Acts Acts 2, where Peter says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So you crucified him, but God made him Lord and Messiah. God is always in the business of fixing the messes that we make. So there is hope, not despair. And secondly, there is dignity, not paralysis. Um, Human responsibility gives us dignity. So we live in a world full of choices, right? Uh, do you want chips or salad with that? Um, do you want free credit on your car purchase? Do you want stainless steel? Do you want chrome? Do you want brass? Light fittings, obviously. Sadly, those kind of choices uh, do kind of suck us in a little bit, uh, and they're not necessarily meaningful ones. But our choices are important. And the biblical picture is that our choices are real, that they have real responsibility. That's wonderful because it gives us immense dignity. We are not like the rest of the natural world. We're not like scorpions or foxes or sunflowers. Because they just do what they do because they have to. We have this dignity in which our decisions are meaningfully free. If you think too long about a world without God, you have to come to the conclusion that actually our choices are meaningless. They can't do anything. If you're a kind of philosophically minded type, you're going to, 
suspect that you're basically pre-programmed and therefore everything you're going to do is inevitable. That's a bit bleak. If you're kind of sociologically or economically minded, you're going to decide, oh, I'm just you know, going to get influenced by everyone around me, so I don't know what I'm going to I'm never going to be free. That can be paralyzing. You think, does, does any choice mean anything? Can I do anything? Can I decide anything on my own? The Christian picture is different. God calls us, he's like a father, he says. He's like a father with his child. He's nurturing us to make our own decisions, to take responsibility. He leads us like a shepherd. He says, follow me, obey me. And finally, of course, God has come into our world in his son to suffer for us, to take all the condemnation we deserve, to free us again to choose to serve him again and again. And that's the wonderful thing about a truly alive Christian life. It's full of freedom, freedom to serve deliberately and taking responsibility for our actions. So there is the greatest dignity in Christ. So back to our starting question. Is anyone in control of this world? Yes, God is. Is anyone responsible for our lives? Yeah, we are. Which one is it? Both and. And we are called to turn all of that towards following Christ with hope and dignity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed the sovereign ruler of our whole lives. We recognize that all our days are in your hands and that because you're a good God, as we have sung so many times this evening, because you're a good God, because you're a kind and compassionate God, that it is good for our lives to be in your hands, that we have nothing to fear, that we can trust you with our days. And Lord, we also want to recognize that you've made us responsible. You've given us meaningful choices, decisions to make. And Lord, we, we, we find ourselves often paralyzed, just finding life so difficult to know what to decide or which choices matter or whatever. We pray that you would give us clarity. We pray that you'd help us take responsibility for the important things in our lives. I'm just going to give a bit of time, a bit of quiet perhaps for you to think, are you, are you someone who needs to hear the, the comfort of God's sovereignty? Are you someone who needs to hear the challenge of your responsibility? So, Lord, we bring you all of our lives, the complexity of our situations, our struggles, and our joys. And we pray that you take them and turn them for yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon Podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church.
God bless you and have a wonderful week. Bye.